the last few weeks, we've been pausing to dwell on those final few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. It's known as the Great Commission, as Jesus sends his disciples out to make disciples of all nations. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we considered what those verses say about who we are, that as Christians, we are priestly people. We're not meant to kind of hoard all of God's blessing for ourselves like a reservoir. Instead, we're to be like a river, that God's blessing would go out from us to the ends of the earth. Last week, we thought about how, how we go out having met Jesus to make him known. We go with an offer of new life and we hold out a new way of life as we follow and as we teach everything that Jesus has said Well, today we're going to think about what we should expect as we go out into the world to shine the light of Jesus. How does the evangelistic rubber hit the road, so to speak, in our lives today? Because what we expect about evangelism will have a huge impact on what we do. If we think that evangelism should be always easy, all the time, that will shape how we go about sharing the gospel. If we think that evangelism will only and ever be difficult and painful, that too will shape what we do. I wonder, what do you expect when you think about sharing the gospel with the people around you? Well, today we're going to think first about three clever myths about evangelism that I think arise from misplaced expectations about what happens when we share the gospel We're then going to consider the two clear expectations that Jesus gives us there in that passage in Matthew chapter 5 and we'll finish by returning and reminding ourselves that the gospel we have and the Jesus that we know is the one hope for everyone in all the world. So three, two, one. That's the plan. So let's start with some myth-busting action Um, because what I've noticed in my life and, and sometimes in the way that we speak about evangelism as a church we can easily adopt some strategies of evangelism that are actually a bit of a clever dodge that miss the point of actually sharing the gospel with the people around us. So, take for example what I call the secret Christian strategy. I think this was very popular amongst me and my friends when we were kind of leaving uni and starting different jobs. You'd hear someone say something like this, in my new job, I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm a Christian. You know, I'm just going to be normal like everyone else, and then when they find out that I'm a Christian, they'll be just surprised that I'm not a total weirdo, and it'll make it easier for them to become a Christian. Now, that sounds very clever, doesn't it? Problem is, when Jesus speaks about evangelism, he says we're to be like salt, and the whole point of salt is that it is different to everything else. Jesus says we're meant to shine as light. The whole point of light is that it stands out. For Jesus, if we're the same as everyone, we are no good to anyone. If we're just normal like everyone else, then why would they need to become a Christian if it would mean they don't have to be any different to how they are? There should be a compelling strangeness and a holy weirdness about Christian people as we live out in the world. People should go, oh, you're a Christian. That makes sense of why you're so odd. But even if our actions do stand out, our actions by themselves are not enough. You might have heard the phrase that does the rounds, share the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. It's very popular. The idea is that if we just follow the example of Jesus, if we live like Jesus, that in itself will be enough to draw people to Christ. 
Now, of course, our actions are incredibly important. If we don't live up to the words that we say, if we don't follow the example of Christ, our gospel words will ring hollow at best and they'll reek of hypocrisy at worst. Our actions do have the power to reinforce what we say or to undermine it. But here's the point, they can't replace our words. A theologian called Michael Reeves, he puts it like this, being a kind and decent person and hoping that others might see a difference in you is part and parcel of being a Christian, but in itself is not yet evangelism. Evangelism has content to it and the content is Jesus Christ himself. Or as Paul famously writes in Romans chapter 10, how can people call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus sends us to speak so that people might hear and believe the good news. And when we try to live as secret Christians, however good our intentions, we can inadvertently make Christ a secret. By hiding our light away, we hide Jesus away. Myth number two, I've called it the personal experience strategy. I've heard people say something like this quite a lot recently. They'll say, I try to talk more about my own experience, my own story of being a Christian, because no one can disagree with that. After all, it's just my experience. Have you heard something like that? It's the same thing when we think that evangelism is just telling people on Monday that I've been to church over the weekend. Or even when we do something wonderfully kind, like offering to pray for someone when they're in a time of need. Again, that sounds very clever and it's very non-confrontational. We can avoid the possibility of pushback or opposition by only talking about our own personal experience of living as a Christian. But again, that does fall short of sharing the gospel. Why? Because the goal of evangelism is not just for other people to know that we go to church. We want them to accept Christ and become a part of God's family and know all the joys of church life that we know. We don't just want people to know our story. We want them to have their own story of knowing and experiencing the love of Jesus for themselves. Even offering to pray for someone. It's a wonderful thing to do. It is an expression of the heart of Jesus for our friends and family members to offer prayer for someone in a time of need. But evangelism aims at something more. We want them to know that they too can pray to the God of the universe because Jesus has died for them. And Jesus loves them and Jesus has opened the way for them to bring their heart before the Lord through repentance and faith in the good news about Jesus. And so here's Michael Reeves again. I think this is, it's very insightful. This means that slipping into casual conversation with a colleague that you happen to go to church on weekends may be a good and helpful conversation starter, but in itself it is not shining with the glory of God. In other words, what we offer is not ourselves, but the Lord. In a world where people say all the time, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, Jesus barges in and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
People need to know that Jesus is not a lifestyle choice for people who are so inclined, you know, like a spiritual version of going to the gym or being a part of a book club. Jesus confronts our culture by claiming to be the one key that unlocks all of life for all people in all times, in all places. That's the Jesus that people need to hear about. Not just the Jesus of our own personal experience, but the Jesus who offers himself personally to all people as the Lord over everything. Now, those first two myths operate under the assumption that, I think, that any opposition is bad and must be avoided at all costs. And they assume that if we're just sensitive enough, if we're nuanced enough or strategic enough, then we can tell other people about Jesus without risking any conflict or awkwardness or confrontation. The third strategy for this morning is the opposite. This strategy is up for the fight. It's ready for debate. It embraces the conflict. It's the knockdown argument strategy. It's not a real strategy. I just made that name up myself. But it's the stuff of countless blogs and YouTube videos with titles like Progressive Gets Completely Destroyed or Atheist Totally Owned by Best Argument Ever. It's the style of evangelism that sees the people around us mainly as opponents that need to be defeated rather than people to be loved with the good news of the gospel. I know that at times I fall into this one, especially with members of my family. I think I'm so desperate for them to see that what I believe is serious and sophisticated and interesting and intellectual. But you can see the problem there. It's all about me. Like the first two strategies, it turns attention away from Jesus and onto ourselves. And we can easily treat Christianity just as a system of thought or a philosophy And it can distract us from the incredibly personal message that Jesus gives us in the gospel. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a little novel called The Great Divorce. um, And the kind of mentor figure says this to C.S. Lewis at one point. He gives this warning. There have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself. As if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. Evangelism is not about winning debates. It's not about proving yourself to be the smartest person in the room. It's about winning people for Christ, proving that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Even our very best and most sophisticated apologetic arguments can't get inside someone and crack open their heart and give them new life. Only the risen Jesus can do that by the power of his spirit, and what he's given us is the simple message that he is Lord. And so in evangelism, we don't just offer our example in the way that we live, we offer Christ. In evangelism, we don't just offer our own experience, we offer Christ. In evangelism, we don't just offer an exposition of the cosmological argument which definitively proves that God exists. We offer Christ. That's the simple heart of what evangelism is all about. And as we do, Jesus then tells us that we should expect two things very clearly. We see it in Matthew 5, which we read together before. We see it in Matthew chapter 10 as Jesus sends his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. 
We see it in the book of Acts as the disciples start spreading out to every corner of the earth. We see it first and foremost in the life of Jesus himself. Wherever the gospel of Jesus is simply and clearly proclaimed, there are two things that are present. Persecution and powerful transformation. Not always in the same proportion. Sometimes one will be more obvious than the other. But it's not like there are times of great persecution and times of great transformation, both together, all the time, wherever the gospel is proclaimed. So look again at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus has laid out what it means to be blessed in his kingdom and he lands in a surprising place. The final blessing. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells us to expect that part of the blessing of following him is suffering with him, suffering like him, suffering because of him. Now, this doesn't mean that we should seek out suffering as if we're only doing it properly if everyone hates us. Notice that it's blessed to be persecuted because of righteousness, to be persecuted because of Christ. The rest of the New Testament emphasizes the gentleness and the grace that should characterize our sharing of the gospel. We're to remove every offense so that only the offense of the gospel remains. But it really doesn't matter how nuanced or sensitive or intellectual we are, the gospel itself will always carry some offense in every culture. Because it says that we're not okay on our own, that we can't do everything all by ourselves that we need rescuing from the problem of our own sin. We don't get to determine our own truth because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. It doesn't matter how we spin it. The gospel is always about a man who died on a cross and who rose from the dead as the only way to escape judgment and receive eternal life. Always going to be odd. And so wherever the gospel is proclaimed, some will recoil against it. Sometimes that will mean they'll just stop listening and they'll move on. Other times they'll reject the person who shares that message with them. And Jesus tells us to expect that. As he said to his disciples in Matthew 10, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? If Jesus was hated and rejected by some as his students and followers, surely we should expect the same. But that's not all we should expect. I think for many of us, the possibility of opposition, the possibility of rejection looms so large in our minds that we forget the second expectation that Jesus gives to us. Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted, but then he continues. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, Jesus continues. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As we get out into the world like salt, as we shine our light, Jesus says there will be powerful transformation. People will taste and see that the Lord is good and seeing our good deeds and receiving the gospel for themselves, they will glorify our Father in heaven. People's lives will be changed because the gospel that we take out into the world is powerful. The name that we proclaim is powerful and as people hear and respond to the gospel in faith, there will be new life. And forgiveness and grace will be poured out on all who put their trust in Christ. And so, yes, Jesus told his disciples to expect persecution, but he also told them this as they went out in Matthew 10. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus says that we should expect powerful transformation through the proclamation of Jesus and his kingdom. The preacher in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, once told the story of a young man who came to him asking for advice at the beginning of his ministry. The young man said, I've been preaching now for a number of months and I've yet to see a single conversion. No one's being saved. And Spurgeon went on to ask him, he said, son, do you honestly expect someone to be saved every time you open your mouth? The young man said, oh, well, well, of course, of course not. Well then, Spurgeon said, that is why you do not get souls saved. Now, Spurgeon admits that he caught this poor young chap in a bit of a trap, but I wonder if we wouldn't be caught in that same trap as well. If you are honest... Have you kind of forgotten just how powerful the gospel really is? Do you think that the gospel is powerful enough to save even that stubborn friend who wants nothing to do with Jesus? Do I believe that the gospel is powerful enough to save my sisters and my brother? Do you believe the gospel is powerful enough for your colleague at work or the person who lives next door Spurgeon went on to say that of many in his day, they tremblingly believe that it is possible by some strange, mysterious method that once in a hundred sermons, God might win a quarter of a soul. Have our expectations sunk so low? Jesus tells us to expect that the proclamation of the gospel will result in powerful transformation and persecution, both together all the time. So here's the challenge that I've been wrestling with this week. It might be a challenge for you as well. Am I so worried about the potential of rejection that I actually close off the possibility of powerful transformation by saying nothing at all? Here's another way to put it for us as a church, maybe just for comfortable Western Christians in general. Is the reason we don't see more and more people just overcome with praise for God around us is because we shrink back from sharing the gospel for fear of opposition. What if our willingness to actually give up our own comfort, to risk our own reputations, to speak openly about Jesus will actually be a compelling witness to the power of the gospel itself?
Now, I don't want to say something trite like, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that could happen is that you could lose a friendship. A family member might decide they don't want to speak to you anymore. There's the possibility that sharing the gospel and speaking openly about Jesus could cost you social status, maybe even something like your job. But what's the best thing that could happen? We could see individuals, families, households, communities, our whole nation transformed for Jesus. Even just one person receiving eternal life. Jesus receiving the glory and honour that he is due. Are we willing to risk the worst for the sake of the best? I know sometimes I'm waiting for the perfect moment to speak about Jesus, as if a conversation will open up and a holy light will shine upon me and I'll hear an audible voice saying, go, 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 now's the time. As if it would just should always be obvious and easy. But here's the challenge. That perfect moment doesn't exist. It's not like we can ever get our timing so pinpoint or our tone so perfect or our words so practiced that we can take all the risk out of evangelism. At some point, we're just going to have to do it and see what happens. But here's the comfort. The perfect moment doesn't exist. And so we don't need to have our words so practiced and our timing so pinpoint and our tone so perfect because, as the young people reminded us in the video today, evangelism isn't about us. The power does not rest in our smarts or sensitivity or strength or strategy. The power rests in the name of Jesus and in the gospel we proclaim which is the one hope for all the world. And that's where I want us to finish today, just by reminding ourselves again that what everyone needs everywhere in the world is to know Jesus as Lord. It doesn't matter how rich people are or how nice they are. It doesn't matter how much they have sinned or how deeply they have suffered. What they most need now in life and for the eternal future is the gospel of Jesus Christ. By all means, let us be gracious, let us be sensitive, let us be thoughtful and wise. But let's not be so clever about it that we forget to just clearly say to people, you really need Jesus and Jesus really loves you. I read an article this week that I thought summed it up beautifully and I'll finish with this. Though the Apostle Paul became all things to all people... The gospel he preached to the Gentiles was the same gospel Peter was entrusted with to preach to the Jewish people. There wasn't many gospels, but one. Paul preached Christ crucified to both the wealthy Corinthians and the poor Macedonians. For in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The same thing could be said of Jesus, who believed that everyone was lost and in need of repentance. Whether they be a prostitute or a Pharisee, Jesus did not show grace to only a select few, but healed the poor and the rich alike. He dined with friend and foe indiscriminately and preached to anyone within earshot. Jesus even counted a tax collector and a zealot as his disciples, sworn enemies who both responded to the same call, come, follow me. In his death, the divine attributes of wrath and mercy collide, forgiving both the crucified thief and the Roman centurion under the darkness of God's judgment. Jesus died for all, regardless of their virtue, 
worth or social status. However different people might be, no one is righteous, everyone suffers, everyone needs the gospel. I think that last bit is amazing. No one is righteous, everyone suffers, everyone needs the gospel. And so Jesus says to us again today, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And here's the wonderful promise, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Lord God, by your grace, we have freely received the gospel. Please would you make us people who freely give it so that people would know Jesus and that he would be glorified. Amen.